The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I always like to remind you whenever we sing that hymn that its author of the words is none other than Francis Scott Key. So this week when you see the American flag raised for a gold medal ceremony at the Olympics and hear our national anthem, you can say to yourself, I sang that guy's hymn last Sunday, the man who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. Well, I have two scripture passages to put before you this morning as we continue considering the theme of after death, what we've been looking at a lot of different things in the last six weeks or so, all related to the Christian's experience of heaven. And today, we want to consider a question that comes up in this regard, and I'm going to read two passages that might not seem to have a lot in common, but I think you'll see how they do both relate before we finish. First of all, Matthew 19, beginning At verse 27, this is the breaking into the midst of a discussion where the rich young ruler has just met with Jesus, a man who presented all his good works and how he thought he had kept everything God wanted him to do, but he couldn't do the one great thing Jesus asked. And it seemed amazing that how would anybody be saved if a man as good as this one couldn't be saved? So let's hear what Peter said on that occasion. Matthew 19, beginning at 27, Peter answered, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now let me bring beside that quite a different passage in a totally different context. 1 Corinthians 3 Paul is there discussing the fact that Corinthians are following various church leaders and saying, I belong to this party or this man's church is my church and so on, and they're exalting Christian leaders. Here's what the apostle says, inspired by the Spirit to answer that. 1 Corinthians 3.8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
If any man builds on this foundation using gold and silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, that's the day of Christ's return, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. This is God's holy word. If there's a music student of a tender age in your extended family, someone who's begun to take piano lessons, it's quite possible that you as a mom or dad or grandparent or aunt or uncle could be invited sometime to a piano recital for fairly young children of maybe, let's say, seven to ten years old. And if you went to one of those occasions, many of you have already been to these I can predict what you would hear. You'd hear some fairly credible music by the older students, some who show talent and have applied themselves and have a few years of lessons under their belt. The music would sound fairly good. Maybe from the first-year students and those who really aren't sure if they're going to stick it or not, you'd get some stumbling melodies and awkward rhythms, and it would jar a little bit, and there'd be stops and starts over again and all of that. But I can also tell you something, almost a certain prediction, that there would be applause or at least appreciation, however it's delivered, for everyone who performs. All the parents would beam with pride, and grandma and grandpa would snap their pictures. And there would not be any case, I would think, in which anyone booed or anyone showed lack of appreciation for a less than wonderful performance. That's just the way it is. That's not about winning or losing. It's about encouragement. There's a similar situation many of us experience today, and it's been this way now for, I guess, 10, maybe even 20 years in in children's sports teams. If you have a child, let's say, on a township soccer team, the way things are done these days is not that to have an award ceremony, especially with the younger children, and to give out trophies to the three or four best players who scored all the goals that season. You know how it's done. Every single player on the team gets a little trophy. And they're all the same size. And you have to make sure they're all the same size. Because today every child has to be made known that they're all appreciated regardless of ability or demonstrated works on the field. Well, what do those have to do with anything? I'm asking whether those examples possibly resemble in some way what Christian believers can anticipate when Jesus Christ receives us into his eternal kingdom. Is it a matter of a nice little trophy for each of us, all the same size, very democratically distributed? When Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, Or is it possible that there are actually some degrees of difference in the reward that people receive in the kingdom of heaven? Certainly, Christians have always been asking this question, what what will I get for being a faithful Christian? What's in it for me? We dare not ask it too loud, but we do ask it. We do wonder about it. 
isn't the idea that I would see my life under some form of discipline by obeying God's commandments and maybe denying myself certain things and submitting to God's will and walking faithfully with Christ, isn't that going to bring me something? Well, the answer to this isn't quite as simplistic as some people might assume it to be. This questioning was going on way back in the Old Testament. I think of the psalmist by the name of Asaph, a lesser-known psalmist. He wrote the great Psalm 73, in which he started out pitying himself as he kind of looked around and saw that there were all these fat cat materialists who were making out very well while they spit in God's eye. And he whined a little bit and said, Surely I have kept my heart pure in vain. The rewards aren't coming to me like they're coming to those people who ignore God. Don't we all think that way sometimes? What's in it for me? What will I receive at the end of the Christian life? Well, there are places indeed where Scripture does appear to recognize certain divine considerations of judgment for discipleship and faithfulness on earth, and that there will be some rewards. The word is used. But we do need to be reminded that whatever recognitions might come our way, those are still expressions of God's gracious dealings with us. They are not rewards of human merit. They are God's grace piled upon grace. Now, first today, I want to point to this passage of Matthew 19, 27 to 29, and draw here from something that that is in this text and in the, the text that follows it, this principle that all believers in Christ receive one gracious crown of life. This is our foundational point, and then I'll build another one on it in a few minutes. All believers in Christ receive one identical and gracious crown of life. The reaction was Peter hearing Jesus speak to the rich young ruler, the guy who seemed to have it all, both materially and spiritually. He seemed like he had the perfectly disciplined life, and yet he couldn't do the one thing Jesus told him to do, and he went away sorrowing. And some said, well, if that guy can't be saved, who can be? And Peter said, well, wait a minute. He couldn't give up what Jesus asked, but we did. He called me from a fisherman's net, and I said, Lord, I'm with you. I'm going right now. And I walked away, and for several years now, I've done nothing but follow him, and I'm not sure how the family's doing back at home. Things are a little tough without the fishing income coming in regularly. I've given up all for him. Certainly, I'm going to get a reward. That's what Peter was asking here. What's going to happen to me, Lord? Now, he wasn't the only one who ever asked this. In fact, we know the discussion was one that was sort of under the surface most of the time during the ministry of Jesus, even as they went towards the upper room. You remember Jesus interrupted when he heard kind of a murmuring among the disciples. He said, what are you talking about? And they didn't want to tell him because they were talking about which of them was going to have the honors and the preferments in the kingdom of heaven. You might, too, remember that stage mother the mother of James and John, who was pretty bold about it all, and she just put it right out there and said, Lord, hey, my two sons have really been serving you well. Now, 
I'd like to hear from you a guarantee that one of them's going to be on your right hand and one is going to be on your left. And you say, wow, lady, that's a bold demand. But she was only saying what other people were thinking. And isn't it true that we all possess a kind of commercial attitude towards estimating whatever good we think we've done in our lives? We wouldn't speak of it too loudly. Most of us are probably more modest than that. But since we pay in money for all other goods and we trade in things in this life in general, we work hard and expect to be rewarded in our jobs if we do things faithfully and prove that, you know, we have a valuable place in the company. We think that good deeds or acts of kindness or spiritual faithfulness, that these things should be somehow paid back measure for measure on some economic scale for us. You might have had good occasion to think about it this week. I did. I found out my snowblower is only a half-measure snowblower. It reached a point where it said, I quit. I can't throw it over those banks. They're too high. But thankfully, I have a couple wonderful neighbors. And these are the macho guys who have the 25-horsepower snowblowers. You know, you practically get on and ride them around. And they came and graciously helped me out and did things for me. Now, I'm sure that happened for a lot of you. And didn't you think if someone gave you that kind of service, oh, I've got to do something for him. Uh, Did you offer your neighbor money? Did you say, wife, you better bake him something especially nice. We have to pay him back. Isn't it possible he was just doing that because he was a kind person and he wanted to be a good neighbor and all he really wanted was your thanks and nothing more? We always feel there has to be some kind of an exchange, don't we? Jesus told Peter, if you leave behind things, if you think you've paid a cost for my kingdom, whatever it is, somehow a break with family, a a sacrifice of time with family, giving up property. He said, look, he first gave them this image that they were going to sit on thrones judging the tribes of Israel, saying, my disciples are going to have a great place in the kingdom, no question about it. But then he said, you're going to get a hundred times as much back and inherit eternal life. Now, The real danger here is of beginning to think that this is a mathematical formula, that I can get it out and precisely calculate it as you do maybe when you make an investment, and the investment says, well, well, we're going to pay you this rate for your certificate of deposit, and you take your calculator, and okay, I'm going to let you have my money for five years, and at this rate of interest, I know what I'll have at the end of five years. If you try to sit down and multiply by a factor of 100 what you think your good life and your disciplined good works are worth and then come up with an answer, you've missed the point of what Jesus is talking about. When he says a hundred times, he's saying, look, the reward of heaven is going to be so great for my servants. It will so overwhelm everything or anything of value that you've ever thought of that you certainly won't be sitting there thinking, is this equal to whatever I gave up? You will have completely forgotten anything that you sacrificed alongside the tremendous nature of what you have gained. And that's true of every single believer. If you just follow this, I didn't read on, but if you have your Bible open, you might just take a look and scan down the beginning of Matthew 20, because there follows in the first 16 verses a parable in Matthew 20 
that emphasizes exactly this. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And this is the one, remember, where the folks were hired at different times in the day, day laborers who stood around waiting for work, and it was a common thing to just go out in the street corner and hire them. Some were hired first hour of the day. Okay, what are we going to get? Oh, let's say five denarii for the day. Okay, good. That's a day's wage. I'm for it. I'll get out there at sunrise, and I'll work for you all day. He goes and gets some more folks at at 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay, come on, let's work. All right, I'm ready to go. And they heard the the five denarii, so they figure, okay, mine will probably be four. Well, some more get hired at 2 o'clock. Come on, I need more workers. All right, let's go. I guess we'll only get two or three. He hires some more at 5 o'clock when there's only a little daylight left, and then comes sundown and time to pay everybody off, and everybody gets five denarii. Whoa. Were the first guys treated unjustly? They received a full good day's wage, what they agreed to work for. But Jesus was saying, no, they weren't cheated. Here was an employer who wanted to demonstrate the abundant grace of God. And God's grace doesn't show favoritism to Israelites because in Abraham's day they trusted God and and were the first and were way ahead of everybody else in the kingdom. And it doesn't say that, that if you were a disciple of Jesus in you know, in the first century A.D., you're, you're really up there in the preferment scale. It says, no, the believer in Christ today receives the same reward of God's grace as Abraham received. God's not just fair, he's super fair. And we must not try to calculate on the basis of earnings and merits when we think about the basic crown of Life that God gives by grace. Remember Ephesians 2. We, so many of you here could say it as a memory verse learned long ago. By grace are we saved through faith. And that faith is not even of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2.8. It's all grace. All believers in Christ receive one gracious crown of life. I quoted Richard Baxter last week, the Puritan who wrote a lot about heaven. Here's something he said. I quote him, What did the Lord see in me that he judged me to be meet or ready for such a state? Let there be no talk of our worthiness. If that were our condition for admittance to heaven, we would have to weep, he said, along with the Apostle John, as we realize that no man in heaven or earth is found to be worthy. But Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is worthy. And Baxter said, he has prevailed in our place. If you must think of salvation as a reward, think of it this way, as God's reward to his faithful son, Jesus, who then shares it as widely as he chooses to do. But it's not a reward of your merit in any sense whatsoever. Isaiah 53 says the will of the Lord prospers in the eventuality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Specifically there it says, God said to his son, I will give him the reward, the portion among the great, and he will divide his spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Salvation, heaven, is God's reward to his son to be shared by the son as he would choose to do it. He's the one who won it by merit, not us. 
Not in any sense whatsoever is it traceable to my merit. Well, it seems then as if my first point is denied the whole idea of rewards. I've said all believers in Christ receive one gracious crown of life. Now, without contradicting that, and we'll try to bring it together at the end, we need to put in a second point here that says some scriptures do imply somewhat different standings of glory among God's saints in heaven. And for that, I read for you this passage of a specific example of it, 1 Corinthians 3. Again, the discussion is is of only a particular group of believers. It's actually about ministers or church leaders there. And Paul is trying to tell people the right way they should think about church leaders because they're thinking about them wrongly and vaunting them up and making them more important than they should be. And Paul's saying, look, it's, it's possible for some to be saved men and ministers of Christ and declarers of the gospel who are guilty of sloppy work or poor craftsmanship, sort of like these gypsy contractors, you know, that come through the areas in the summer and somebody hires them and they come in and do a real fast job and throw paint over the whole thing and you don't quite realize that it hasn't been built right at all until they've left town and you don't know where they are. It's possible to actually be a minister of the Lord and and use gospel ministry and working with people and do it poorly, do it inadequately. Some of you children would get the point of this if you think of the famous children's story, The Three Little Pigs, remember? One house of straw, down it went. One house of sticks. I read this story all the time in case you wonder. Another house of sticks, down it went. And then there was a house of bricks. One pig built the right way. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. There are actually ministers who are like the three little pigs. Some of them build with worthless material, and they, they don't care for souls, and they're, they're more concerned maybe for their own advancement or something than they are for really working with God's people and bringing the gospel to them compassionately and in the fullness of truth. And we're told here that whatever they accomplish won't survive. In the day of Christ, it's going to actually be burned up Verse 14 says those who build with integrity in the gospel will get, quote, a reward. Verse 15 says some of these others are going to escape with singed hair, but that will be about all that's left. Their souls may be saved, but their works will perish. Because why? I, I can't know exactly what's wrong with these people, except that maybe they were people that were more concerned about the numbers that were filling their building or how many books they sold or something else than they were about seeing souls receive the bread of life and come to Christ. The point is, there's no specific measurement given in this text for how God calculates who builds the right way and who builds the wrong way. And I think that's important. It's left to him to judge and determine. You know, in the NFL, they they have a point system for quarterbacks. And I think it's possible, I don't remember exactly, but I think you can get up well over 100. If you're a really good quarterback, you might get up to somewhere like 125 points. If you're just really mediocre, oh, you're about a 70-point quarterback, and your starting job's probably in jeopardy if you're only a 50 or a 70-point quarterback. But 125, hey, Brett Favre, you know, give me him for my team. There's no point system for the servants of God. And in fact, no one is able to undertake their own evaluation about where they stand in these things. It's for the Lord to judge. Now, there's some other texts just quickly referenced that show some words about reward. Matthew 5, 
Verse 12, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about certain folks who would get what he called a great reward in heaven. Who were they? They were people who are persecuted for Christ. Stop and think about that, American Christians. If you never knew what it meant that some who are first now are going to be last and last first, think about the Christians in Sudan. Think about Christians in North Korea today. Think about Christians in Indonesia where their churches could easily be torched or firebombed while they're in it. There are those who are persecuted for Christ who are going to be rewarded in ways that American Christians will never understand or receive because we are not opposed for our faith as those folks are. There's another reference. Matthew 10.41 mentions something a little mysterious. It says that some are going to receive a prophet's reward. Once again, that seems to be the idea of the one who's used as a spokesman for, for God and His Word and the sum reward, but it doesn't spell out what that is or how one receives it. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is a reference to concentrate on because it does apply to everybody. Listen to what it says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each one might receive what is due him for things done in the body whether good or bad. That used to confuse me when I was a teenager and a young adult trying to understand biblical theology. It sounds an awful lot like salvation by works, doesn't it? The judgment seat of Christ, receive what is due me for what I did. Do you mean God judges by works after all? I thought it was justification by grace through faith. It is. But we're talking here about the judgment that a Christian even has to receive, not as to whether he'll be saved or not, but what he has done. Our works are the best indicators God has of what the Holy Spirit has developed in our lives and how our potential and our gifts have been utilized. We're not judged for salvation based on our works, but apparently God looks at how we've developed and visible things about our life and says, There is something. There is a way of reward here that is going to be different for some as opposed to others. Now, there are many other passages. I'm not even going to start naming references, but some other passages that mention Christian rewards. There are those that say those who endure testing will be rewarded. Those who especially seek after God. Those who die for Christ. Those who win souls. Those who are faithful stewards those who show hospitality to God's ministers. On and on. There are various passages that say these folks will be rewarded. So what do we have? It sounds like we have two contrasting things here. One crown of life by justification through grace for every Christian, but some receiving rewards. How do we get these together? Here's my third point that I hope is a form of synthesis for this. I hope it makes sense to you. My third point is to say that the rewards of God's grace are never, ever to be considered as merit badges. Some of you have grown up in scouting, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, maybe the equivalent like Christian Service Brigade, Pioneer Girls, you know what merit badges are. I was very briefly just a Cub Scout. I never made it into Boy Scouts, but in Christian Service Brigade, we, we would earn these badges. Now, you could take the Boy Scout handbook out, and maybe as a young man you're interested in the auto mechanics merit badge. So you look it up, and, you, and here's do these things, one, two, three, four projects, 
show your scoutmaster that you did them, you got a nice badge to sew on your sash. And boy, when you're a young scout, I remember with some Boy Scouts who came to my Cub Scout troop, and one guy came with his sash across his chest, and he must have had 50, at least, merit badge. That whole thing was full, and I thought, wow, that guy is super scout. Look at the badges he's earned. What I'm trying to say to you is the rewards of God's grace for Christian living are not merit badges. There are no rules spelled out, do this and it will lead to this exact reward. We instead are called to follow Christ, to obey God's word, to submit to God's will, to pray, to witness, to give, to sacrifice, to serve, to go to death if we need to go there for Christ. And let the outcome belong to the Lord. You see how quickly we can get into a grasping attitude like that that snared Judas. What really pulled Judas down after all, if you could analyze it? I think it was this. What's in it for me? And he wasn't satisfied with what was in it for him. And he had to find a way to multiply it somehow. You know the word mercenary? Young people, it's a word you need to learn. Children, learn the word mercenary. It's someone who does something only with the incentive that they're getting paid for it. No other incentive at all. In the American Revolution, we fought against German Hessian mercenaries. They didn't care whether we were a free country or not a free country. They were being paid to come and fight us. Are we Christians because we say, God is going to give me this reward? Or are we willing to leave that to our Father? Luke 17.10 has a very perceptive thing, a tiny little parable Jesus told about the servant who who worked in his master's field, and then he came in and made his master's dinner. And Jesus said, "And, and what? At the end of the day, did he expect his master to say, oh, you wonderful servant, you are so wonderful to, to help me out? No, he was the servant. And Luke 17.10 says, when we've done what our service requires, we would say to our master, I am still just your unworthy servant. Do with me as you will. Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, had something that helps us understand this, I think. Let me quote him first and then explain it. Edwards wrote, The saints in heaven are like so many vessels or jars of different sizes, every vessel being cast into a sea of happiness in Christ where every vessel, no matter what its size, becomes full to the brim. You see, that's heaven. There are half-pint Christians. Christians, perhaps, of limited gift for some reason or other, who, cast into the sea of eternity, are full to the brim of Christ. There are one-pint or two-pint or maybe rarely out there a one-gallon Christian full of greater talents, and by the way, having greater responsibilities, because the Scripture says that. Those with more gifts have more responsibility to use them. But cast into the sea of Christ in eternity, Edward said, every vessel is equally full. That's the right way to understand this subject, I believe. We all have the reward of God's grace. Some with greater gifts, greater responsibilities, who aren't thinking of it and saying, I'm building up my merit badges, I'm building up my points, without thinking of it at all. 
are going to have brighter stars on their crown. I want to give you a quick illustration some of you have heard me say before, but I think it's a wonderful story, short story from church history that teaches me how we should wear our merits, whatever they are, in this world very lightly. It comes from the relationship of two godly men in the 18th century, George Whitfield, the great British evangelist, and John Wesley, also an Englishman. They were great friends in the early stages of their Christian life respected each other, liked each other, and thank God they also reconciled somewhat near the end of their lives. But there was a a real rift between these two men through much of their ministry. And it was because Whitfield was a more grace-oriented, Calvinistic evangelist, emphasized the role of grace. Wesley was the more Arminian, human free will emphasis. And sadly, at one point, Wesley struck out with a publication, a little booklet that he printed that openly attacked Whitfield and his Calvinism with no provocation at all, in a very vicious way, actually. And Whitfield's friends said, George, fight back. Look at how Wesley has attacked you. You need to publish your tract and say how wrong Wesley is and strike back at him. And Whitfield said, no, I, I won't do it. In fact, when he finally, finally, finally was pushed to do it, what he wrote was so gracious, it was amazing. But he said, no, I, I won't fight back. And one day, one of his supporters came and said, George Whitfield, Reverend Whitfield, I want to ask you a question. With the way Wesley's treating you, do you think you will ever see your opponent, John Wesley, in heaven? And Whitfield gave a wonderful response. He hardly even had to think about it. He said, oh, oh, no. No, my friend. No, I will not see John Wesley in heaven. Of that I am sure. For John Wesley's place will be so close to the throne of Christ, and my place so far removed in the outer districts of glory, I do not expect to catch a glimpse of my friend John Wesley at all. Ladies and gentlemen, can we walk with Christ in that kind of faithfulness? There was one of the greatest servants Christ had in the 18th century who wore what God would do through him and what would live beyond him in such humility, totally unselfconscious of merit in himself, that he brought great honor to his Savior. If the Scripture is true, it tells us that every one of us, whether we're the half-pint Christian or the gallon Christian, is going to hear our Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to say too, come, you who are blessed of my Father, take of your inheritance, take of the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hearing that, that that is promised to us, we need to be overwhelmed by thankfulness for God's grace and live today with our minds and our souls soaked in that gratitude to the one who will speak to us who are so unworthy. Let's pray together. Father, help us to stop all the time saying, what's in it for me? Your grace is amazing. What you offer that you would accept one of us into your kingdom in light of all our demerits, is astonishing. Lord Jesus, teach us the joy of serving you and leaving the outcome 
in your good and faithful and merciful hands. For Jesus' sake, amen.